0: Deo Valente, Deo Deo Valente, Valente. God willing, you know it's going to be true. You know it's going to happen. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 Here's the thing. So if I say, Can I get an amen? You say, Amen. But if I go, Amen, you say, Alleluia. (laughs) All right? Let's try it. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 There you go. We'll see if I remember any of that today. Please be seated. We've got a lot to cover. because we're looking at mark chapter 16 and you cannot if you are an honest person look at mark chapter 16 and ignore the fact that there is a major major problem with the text of mark chapter 16. by that i mean that what we have inherited as paper From the ancient world isn't as clear as you would like it to be with regards to Mark chapter 16. And today we're going to try to take that on. But at the start here, then let me be very, very clear about my position on the Bible. I believe the Bible is true. You can talk about inspired and inerrant, and those words matter. And the fights in the 1970s in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, about those words matter. But what was at the heart of it is the question, is the Bible true? Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. The Bible is true. So when we're going to talk about a problem with a text, I'm not saying that what Mark 16 says is not true. I'm saying that some of what it says might not have been written by Mark. And so I don't want to give it the same kind of credit that I give to Mark. Because if it was written by, say, a scribe in the 200s, and he is a Christian, and he actually said everything that's true, what we have at the end of Mark 16 is basically an early church commentary on the text, why would a monk write an early church commentary on the end of Mark 16? Well, how did it end just a few moments ago when you heard it read? They all ran away. Scared. Oh Amen. Sit down. Right? Well, that can't be right, can it? And, and that's the debate now. So you go and you pick 15 Lutheran Church Missouri Synod pastors— at random, put them in a room, draw a line in the metal, and say Mark 16, official or not, or you know, authentic or not at the end, you will divide in half. You'll get guys on both sides of the room. Which should tell you it's not that big of a deal, actually. Right? But the thing is, and I know this from experience, as soon as you talk about text criticism or how we know where the Bible came from, people that are used to, well, I found it in a cave, and it's true, they're, they're like... Afraid of where it really came from So what I want to do today is convince you how confident you can be in where the Bible came from It didn't come down in a meteor out of the sky at one point on the earth You can build a tent around it and send people on pilgrimage to worship it There's religions that do that, you know If you know the one I'm talking about, it's pretty famous Ours didn't do that, although you can say that the Son of Man definitely descended from on high held a very special tabernacle in the womb of the virgin. And so there's, there's truth here too, right? But, but then where did the text come from? Where did the Bible come from? And that's what I want to try to answer for you a little bit here today. Okay, so here's the thing about the whole Bible. The whole Bible is not one book. The whole Bible is like 66 books. If you've ever had trouble when a pastor's like, you should read the Bible. And you're like, I'm not sure where to start, pastor. It's because us pastors forget. Like we said, go read 66 books. Like that, That's not easy. I mean, if they're all art books, if they're all like for little kids, I guess, but they're not. And the number of books that are easily accessible to children, I would say is kind of challenging actually a little bit. Because you can't get very far into any of them. Even the Gospel of John, where Jesus is just Mr. Love, love everybody Jesus, and you find him saying pretty powerfully insulting things to people. What do you do with this God who shows up and does these kinds of things? Well, again, what's best, I find, is to ask what's going on in the book that I'm reading. Meaning, not the Bible, but, say, the Gospel of Mark. What does Mark really want me to take away? And so the Bible, again, is a bunch of different books that all have the same God as their author but different men as their authors during different times over the course of thousands of years of history, the best ancient history that we've really got still to this day, but written down in a variety of languages, a whole bunch of different styles, right? So read the Bible more. I know, Pastor, it's hard. So for that answer... I've told you before. What What's the next thing I'm going to tell you you should do? If reading the Bible's too much, what should you do? Somebody. I know i got sons of Solomon in there. Hmm? Proverbs or? Psalms. There you go. Start there. Put the name of Jesus for the Lord. It will change your life. I promise. It's worth a quarter at least. Try it. But where did these books come from? The Psalms is a book that was put together over hundreds of years by a variety of different people. The Proverbs also, although attributed to Solomon, have the hand of Hezekiah involved and a guy named Agur involved. So any one of these books is challenging enough. And they all, at one point, as Old Testament books, aren't like in a book. They're a pile of scrolls at the temple. This is where the Babylonian captivity of the Old Testament was such a dangerous thing. All of their scripture could have been lost. It wasn't. And I would suggest that Daniel's life in the kingdom of Babylon, that as a, as a leader there, all the power he had, it was, it was to pre- preserve the scriptures. And we know he definitely was reading Jeremiah. He, he says so. So again, you've got these scrolls that make it through the exile and are held very tightly by the Jewish people um, up until the time of Jesus. But they also get translated into Greek, and there's multiple variations on the Greek translation. So you get kind of a a growing argument about, well, okay, we've got this copy here, and we've got this copy here, and which one's true, which one's right? There's differences. And the Hebrew scholars, the the rabbis and, and the Jewish people, they got to the point where they were counting letters They were counting letters of every scroll so that they could never make a mistake, so they could keep the actual text. But then along comes Jesus, and he's fine with keeping the scriptures, but things kind of change under him a little bit. And there's this, this explosion of Christianity which says the Old Testament scrolls, those are all true, but they've been fulfilled in this one man, Jesus. And for like 20 years, 15 years of the church, there's only one writing that they write down. ...that they all hold on to, and that's the letter in Acts 15. that's sent about blood and pornography, pornea uh, idolatry, and, and twisted things. But they live with only the Old Testament as their Bible for quite a while. And then controversies, fights start to happen. And you have a guy named Paul, and James actually too, begin to write letters. You might call them prophetic letters... Uh, that go to various congregations. And this is where it all starts to roll together. So one guy writes a letter to St. Corinth, and his name is St. Paul. And Corinth is a little mad about the letter, but there's people there who keep a copy. In fact, they keep three or four copies. And then they hear up in Athens that there's a letter from Paul in Corinth, and they say, can we get a copy? And they go, well, it's expensive. They go, we'll pay for it. We'll pay for two copies. Now you've got two copies up there. They make copies and send copies over to Ephesus. Ephesus, meanwhile, sends back copies of Philemon, and can you see how this starts to build over the course of 200 years with nobody in charge? What happens is you have more copies of the Bible floating around than any document in ancient history. They have copies that come out of their ears. They invent books, spines on the edge of the book, to keep the copies. Christians came up with them because we wanted it all to fit together. But the thing is, it copies and copies, and I got this and I got that. What happens when somebody, his name was Marcion, around 300, shows up and starts saying, I have the only true version. (laughs) Lost my note card. I have the only true version, he says. If you really want to be a Christian, you can only use my Bible. And you might think no one would fall for that. Um, uh, Watch less TV. right? Uh, People will fall for it. Uh, and what happens is you have this big rift in the church over a Bible that more or less has no Old Testament, no Peter, no, no James, a little bit of Paul, some Luke It's most of it. And, of course, Marcion is not so far removed from Arius, a similar controversy at the same time, a guy who taught that Jesus is not God but just like a really cool angel, like the bestest angel there ever was but not God. Some of God, sure, but not God. Um, By the way, uh, churches that teach that Jesus is not God and say you have to use our Bible and no other Bible, they do exist today, still, in America, okay? I I won't name, name names today, but okay, so Marcion shows up with his list of this is the only real Bible, and you have a bunch of other pastors, bishops, leaders in the church, famous guys actually, we call them church fathers, uh, you know, Basil or, or Augustine and others like those, they start writing letters to each other saying, where this Marcion list come from? Have you heard of this? Because I have all these other books. You have these books. So you get these letters that start exchanging in the two and 300s from church fathers with lists of, oh, these are the books in the Bible. And here's the really great news about all of this information. In the lists that are given, you always have the four Gospels. You always have the four Gospels. They're always there. Paul's letters, the ones we have, they're always listed. What happens is that among the Church Fathers, you get a couple extra books that aren't in our Bible today. They'll mention things like the Didache or the Shepherd of Hermes, which are first century writings by Christians. The first Clement, the first Bishop of Rome, writes a letter to Corinth. So you have things like that mentioned in the lists, but nothing's Nothing's like missing, right? Like, we don't add stuff later. (laughs) Uh, They have it all there, and then what happens later, 300s, 400s, you have Gnosticism, which is a Greek pagan cult that realizes that to make money it needs to look like Christianity. It starts having its own writings with Jesus in it. Think, you know, I'm going to make a movie, and it's about Jesus. I swear it's history. Oh, look, Jesus is not Saying things Jesus said uh, Well it's, it's true I swear What do you know It's the only thing you've ever seen they, they, This movement does this This Gnostic movement does this And so the church then has to respond by saying Yeah no the gospel of Thomas uh, that, That's a lie Where that happened Where the church was forced to respond Is the council of Nicaea From which a Nicene Creed comes And some, somebody online is going to tell you That's where Constantine the pagan emperor Decided what the bible was That's why I don't trust the bible Okay yeah well you trust the internet too much Honestly, I trust the internet too much. Constantine was there. It was a massive council. Every Christian worth his salt, every leader that was a pastor that was faithful was there to argue about whether or not Jesus was the son of God or not. Or whether he's God or not. That whole Aryan controversy. But out of it, you get them acknowledging we all agree on these books being in the Bible. Yeah, I got my favorite pony back home that those guys don't have, but we'll all accept these books. That's our canon. That's our list. That's what you see in the front of your book today, right? Not including, by the way, those intertestamental books. So all of this is to say, then, that's where the Bible comes from. Mark's letter is written sometime in the 50s or the 60s, probably by John Mark, a one-time traveling companion of St. Paul, uh, who then travels with Barnabas instead for a bit, and it would seem ends up with St. Peter before the end of his life, because the church fathers tell us that, St. Peter is the apostle who's behind the Gospel of Mark. So Mark is learning from Peter's point of view and then telling the story as Peter remembers the story. That's tradition, but there's no reason to just throw it out for, for no reason. Okay, so all of this is just to get us back to the point Uh, where we find out that Mark, being written in the 50s and 60s, somewhere in there, A.D., uh, before the destruction of the temple, has multiple copies getting passed around and goes through that whole same process that all of Paul's letters go through, where churches are making copies and passing copies, making copies and passing copies. And we have the archaeological evidence of this history of copying. And this, just the fact is that after verse 8 doesn't exist until later. And then you have multiple attempts to fix it before the one that we usually translate. You have other endings that don't show up in the translation. There's multiple endings to say Mark's gospel. Which one's true? Right. Well, in one sense, all of them. They all confess Jesus is risen from the dead. Even the one where you don't see Jesus risen from the dead, which would be the short ending, to end at verse, verse 8 there. Um, he says he's risen from the dead. Remember, Jesus has been saying all the way through this book, this thing's going to happen. And then it it always happens, right? Jesus sees it coming. Jesus knows what's next. Well, he's been saying he's going to die and rise, so if Mark doesn't tell you how the story ends, does that mean he didn't tell you how the story ended? Or did he leave you with something different, right? With a desire for more, which I, I, that would be the, I, the impact here. Okay, so... With all of that as our kind of introduction, right, and recognizing that there are hundreds of copies, thousands of copies of biblical documents, and in Mark, you have some copies that have extra text on them. The real question first should be, when that extra text, if I were to say that extra text isn't inspired and without error, what happens to Christianity? Does it change? And the beautiful thing is, nothing changes unless you believe in snake handling. And I really mean that. If you believe that a sign from the Holy Spirit is you can pick up poisonous snakes and not get bit, and there are people who do this, okay? Uh, well, then you're going to lose something with Mark 16. But other than that, you don't lose a thing. Everything that's confessed in the rest of Mark 16 is confessed somewhere else in the Bible. There's not a thing lost. a beautiful thing about Scripture interpreting Scripture. So from my point of view, the fight doesn't matter. The, the real question is, if it's the shorter ending, why, why did Mark do that? What's he trying to get at? I get why either Mark or a scribe talks about the resurrection of Jesus and they see him. I get that. What I need to explain, that's more difficult, is how the ending get lost if it was originally written long. Where'd it go? Who cut it off? Huh? And so my position personally is that the short ending is the correct ending. But, remember how I started this. You can split LCMS pastors in half over this. This shouldn't make it so you don't trust Mark 16. What it should make it do is have a different kind of uh, multiple choice ending for the way you read Mark. Do you read Mark wherein, at the very end, you're kind of like, golly, we got to do something about this. That's the short ending. If you're going to read Mark with the kind of like, the church is one foundation is Jesus Christ. Okay, well, that's, that's the later ending. Now, you might say, well, we got to do something about this that's not about Jesus. I said, well, is it not? What are we supposed to do about the fact that nobody went to see Jesus? Aren't we supposed to believe he's risen and start talking about Jesus? Yes, we are. So do you see how both endings give you the same place if you're a biblical Christian? But now, what I want to do with our remaining minutes is just go through what happens if the ending is just a little bit More edgy. What happens? Mark 16 is on page 853 of your pew Bible. And the first thing I want you to look at is how just about every Bible is going to acknowledge everything I just said textually. So if you look at Mark 16 in your pew Bibles on the far right of page 853, and if you scan down after verse 8 and before verse 9, there's a big break with some brackets. And those brackets say some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. And you can see how there's there's quite a bit there that goes on. Uh, so the issue is unavoidable. It's a textual issue. I hope I've made the case to you today. It, it actually doesn't matter. It doesn't change Christianity at all. It's a testimony to how many copies we made of the Bible, how much the Christians believed it was worth copying. It's a testimony to how somewhere, somebody thought it's really important you don't forget Jesus rose from the dead. Like if you ever find Christianity without a resurrected Jesus, like that messed up. Say something about it. That's what this other author probably did. But then also you have, what is Mark, what's Mark doing? Who is he trying to get us to trust? So that's where verse 1, let's start there. Mark's account is unique as everything Mark does is. Uh, when the Sabbath was passed, and Jesus is in the ground for Saturday, the Sabbath, uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. Of course, Mary Magdalene is a, a woman who, from whom seven demons had been cast out. She was a, a devoted follower of Jesus. There were a number of other women who followed along with the disciples. Most of them are named Mary in some way. Uh, Mary was sort of like your first name as a Jewish girl. It just sort of was. Um, If you ever go to Brazil, uh, sometimes this kind of tradition is there amongst Catholics as well. Every girl's first name is Mary. And then the second name is what they go by. So that's the way this was in that time. But this this other Mary, Mary the mother of James, uh, scholars can fight about anything – uh, but the guess here that seems to be best is that this is James, uh, the brother of Jesus. And so that this James, uh, the brother of Jesus, marries the mother, is, is well, Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. Now, so does Mary, the mother of Jesus, go and Mary Magdalene to the tomb? It, that's what most modern scholars think it's saying. Here. Uh, it's a tough one. I don't know. Uh, but sharing with you what I do know. Salome is mentioned in other texts as well as one of the followers of Christ. Then buying the spices, though. Remember how he dies at the end of a major festival, and that festival includes a Sabbath during which no work can be done. And they're in great earnestness to get his body buried before the sun goes down on Friday, because otherwise they've got to leave it hanging for a day and a half. They don't want to do that. So in their haste, they are unable to prepare the body for uh, its, its, what, its... Corruption over time. Uh, we do this today as well. right? The mortician does this. They didn't get to do that. And so they go to do that with these spices. Very early, it says, verse 2, on the first day of the week. That means this is what we call Sunday. Um, and at the time, they would have thought of this more as Monday, though, especially in Hebrew culture. This is a work day. It's the first day. But it's going to change everything now, right? Uh, we have a new week We have a new time. We have a new era beginning. Uh, The sun has risen, and they go to the tomb. Verse 3, they're saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Uh, What does that mean at its deepest root? It means they don't believe what he said. I'm really buying the spices. I could have said this too. What did he say? He said, I'm going to get killed, and after three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. And they're like, Who's going to roll the stone away so we can anoint the dead body? This is so important for understanding your nature. Like when you find that in your heart you can't just get yourself to be the person you want to be, don't be surprised. We're unbelievers at root. And by that I just mean we don't trust at root, we don't trust God. We don't trust each other. On some level, we don't trust ourselves unless we're arrogant. We don't have a good way to trust ourselves. We tend to get arrogant. So this nature of ours that is unbelieving at root, this is why Jesus died. All this time he's saying he's going to die. Why? To kill this nature. And he's going to kill this nature by restoring it anew in his own super. Nature, right? That as God and man risen from the dead, everything changes. But he, again, right now, they don't get it. Verse four, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Well, if you don't know the story, that's pretty surprising, right? You're coming up to a big blockage. and It's just gone. What happens next? Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side of, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. So this is, this is kind of a weird moment. Most of the other texts tell us that this is an angel, which makes sense, I guess, but, but Mark doesn't say that. He says he's a young man, and he's all dressed in white. Why is Mark talking about it that way? And I, I don't know. It's one of those weird eccentricities about Mark. Um, but one of the things I was reading on this suggested that this is a sign of how much the world has changed in Jesus' resurrection. Because angels don't normally walk about as, as people. But now where Jesus is, the angels just show up. You can see them. They're, they're like elves. They're just there. Now, I'm not saying that you know, actually you can see them today, but, but you can believe that they're just there. Yes, you can. You can believe that the angels are on your side. They're like robed young men with glorious armor and the power of God to stave off the devil and all of his all the foes of God. You can know they're on our side now. And especially when we gather together like this, you have to believe that for every one of us here there's at least one angel that's been sent to care for us. I can defend that, but I don't need to right now. It's just true. So there's, there's well over you know, close to 100 angels here this morning, right, hanging out, they're going to sing with us in just a moment about how great it is that God saved everything. <laughs> right? It's a big deal to them. And so here he is, you know, saying to them in a little surprise. Like, oh, you, did, you don't know. Didn't he talk about it? How, how are you not? Well, go find him now. Go find him now, right? It's sort of where this conversation is going to go. Yeah. Uh, he said to them, of course, they're alarmed. They're scared of the guy. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Ah, emphasis on the crucified. Mm-hmm. Some people want to say, you know, why is he still on the cross? He's not on the cross anymore. And we can make all kinds of jokes. Why is he in the crash in the nativity scene? He's not there anymore. But, but that's not the issue. The issue is that the cross makes us uncomfortable. And so we try to find ways to, to weaken it. And by taking the body off the cross, uh, we can forget the gore. We can make the cross kind of pretty. In fact, pagans wear crosses today. They think it's just art. They don't don't tend to wear crucifixes, though. They won't do it. Uh, And and it's not as though you have to have a a body on your cross. But the, the point is to confess, who is Jesus now? Okay, is he off the cross? Yes. Does he still have the scars? Can I get an amen? Yeah? He still has the scars. So he's the crucified one no matter what. Sometimes I wonder, I'm pretty sure the crowns described in the Bible of the, the light and the gems will be on his head, but sometimes I wonder if the only crown that'll be on his head is the stars. Maybe they'll glow. It's kind of cool, I think. Yeah. So again, Jesus is the crucified one who has risen, right? He is not here, he says. See the place where they laid him, right? Check the evidence. Christianity is a historical religion, it's not a proposition about ideas. It's not, I have a good idea, the Trinity. No, th- that is not Christianity. Christianity is that guy's not dead anymore? What are you talking about? What did he say before he died? Did anybody write it down? Write it down. That's Christianity. Okay? So again, the evidence. The eyewitness testimony. See where they laid him. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, the mention of Peter there. Remember that Peter's probably the one kind of behind this document a little bit, right? <laughs> Uh, There you will see him just as he told you. Notice the emphasis on what Jesus says comes to pass. He told you it'll happen? Then it's going to happen. Now, let's just stop and pivot immediately. Okay, so if what Jesus told you is going to happen, is going to happen, then what do you know is going to happen? You know some things are going to happen. You know some things are going to happen today. You know things are going to happen at the end of time. What happens at the end of time? He's coming back. To do what? To judge, yes, to judge you, how? Righteous. To raise you from the dead, right? To usher in an everlasting kingdom of innocence and blessedness and righteousness. He's told you that. He's told you in the meantime, is it gonna feel good the whole way? No, he said it's gonna hurt. But he also has said, you know, you were blind, but now you see, and you were deaf, but now you hear. He's also said that the kingdom's not gonna stop Not going to hide. Going to blow you away. In fact, he is the kingdom coming down to you, going into you now. We are the kingdom. And so everything he's told us, we can bank on. This is why reading your Bible is important. And that's why reading your Psalms and Proverbs will blow your mind. Change you into a biblically thinking person. You'll start to wonder not why everyone else around you who's watching CNN and Fox off the edge is so crazy. You won't be like, they're so crazy. You'll be like, oh, they're fools. Why would you say that? Because, because the Bible just said that what they did is what a fool does. Look, it lines up. It's actually, it actually just describes life. It's really useful. I can't encourage us enough to do that. On the foundation that is there from God, who is gracious to us, and plans to raise us now in our mind according to trust in his word. Huh? And so what he's told us to come to pass were to be disciples of that, disciplined by it, seeking it, and knowing the promises we're going to find it. Now verse 8 is where then Mark kind of has his moment, though. And, and they went out and fled from the tomb, and trembling in astonishment, it seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Is that how it's supposed to end? And the, really, the only reason that I think it probably does end that way is because I can't explain why on earth he would end it that way. And then I don't know who would cut it off. Why would you have these older copies that just end there and, and testify to this as the way that it ends? But then, okay, so then the best guess is this. You're supposed to be frustrated by the ending. You're supposed to be like, wait a minute. Only the demons knew he was God the whole time? And that one pagan soldier, only him, but the women, they just, they ran away afraid. Didn't they, didn't he talk to Peter? Didn't Peter run to the tomb and John and stuff? Where's that other gospel? Let's go read that. You see what Mark might be doing then? It's not done. It's not over. It doesn't finish. Go into all nations, baptize, great commission. Here we go. It's not done. Right? And Mark's just emphasizing that with such a great kind of cosmic horror twist, if you know the reference. Only that in this cosmic horror, the great old power isn't the devil who is driving you mad. It's the God who's bringing you back to sanity through his grace. I hope I haven't put you off your game with regard to whether or not you trust the Bible. There are only two places in the whole Bible with that kind of textual critical challenge. One is Mark 16 and one is John 8. Neither of them do you lose the substance of who Jesus is or the the power of the Christian faith. And so my suggestion is to read what's there and trust it as what the early church believed Jesus did and don't worry too much if someone says, did you know that's not in the Bible? Like, so what? It doesn't say anything false. And what the Bible does say is true. That's the point. It's trustworthy. It's not going to lead us astray. Because again, it is the word... Of the everlasting King, the Son of David, the Man of Peace, who, as the God of Israel, fights for you. How how is his sword ever going to do anything other than benefit you? In the name of Jesus, amen.